If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Thursday, March 14th, which means you've had a couple of days now to recover from 90s night at, at Disneyland Park. So I love living vicariously through you. What was that like? <laughs> It was both really fun and also a huge waste of time and money. Um, (laughs) Welcome to a Disney theme park. Yeah, yeah. All right. The problem is they let so many people into the events, Mm -hmm. and they have so few food and photo opportunities that everything has a huge line, Mm -hmm. no matter where you go or what you want to eat. So, like, we wanted to try. They had, like, bacon cheddar popcorn Mm -hmm. that night. From one stand in uh, Frontierland. The line was, was so long. And I, I'm sorry, but I did not pay $99 to wait an hour for popcorn. It just did not <laughs> happen. So I didn't get any great photos. There were a couple of cool things that I think you'd appreciate. When you went into Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye, they handed you a decoder card oh. like they did in 1995. Okay. Which is very cool. And then they had Indiana Jones not doing a meet and greet exactly, but he kind of did a little show outside of the temple. Mm-hmm. It was very cool. And the other cool thing was they had a fireworks show that was set to all the Disney afternoon music. Oh. And you could tell that they actually had Jim Cummings mm-hmm. do some new dialogue as Darkwing Duck because one of the things he said was, I am the stroller that runs into your ankle on Main Street. <laughs> Which I thought you would appreciate. <laughs> well, you know, I heard from other friends who attended the event, the longest night line of the night. And in fact, I su- my understanding is they actually kept it going after the event was over because so many people were still in line was if you wanted to get your picture taken with Goofy and Max from the Goofy movie with Max dressed as power line, that I guess that line went all the way to Boyner Park. Oh, it was crazy. That was set up in Tomorrowland and you could not... You couldn't even see the photo op. There were so many people around it and waiting in line. It was nuts. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. I saw one other person in a Dick Tracy shirt, mm-hmm. but not as good as mine. Okay. So I felt very comfortable there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would do it again, but of course, if they did an 80s night, I would be there mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. Okay. Because I'm a sucker. Yeah. Well, glad that you made it there. And again, I, I guess I'm glad that they are taking the time to do these sorts of things, to sort of look back to the company's history and that sort of thing. But if we're talking Disney of the 80s and the 90s, that does get a touch problematic when we circle into Captain EO. But yeah. Disney Company pretends that isn't happening anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did, did you watch the documentary and, and see how many Captain EO moments there were oh, in there? no, no. It's been on my to-do list. So... I'm told that Disney Legal came after them about there was footage from like the premieres and that sort of thing or Oh really? Yeah, I mean the things that they show in the movie are things like the kids have Captain EO posters on their walls mm-hmm. from the period. They there's a lot of shots of them at Disneyland. There's actually some footage of one of them with Michael Jackson at 
Euro Disneyland, and you can tell by the um, Big Thunder Mountain mm-hmm. that it's Euro Disneyland. And there's a shot with with Michael and and a plush of Fuzzball. I mean, you have to look for it, mm-hmm. but there's definitely a lot of Captain EO stuff in there, which uh, which is uh, a tad disconcerting. But you know. In the wake of this two-part HBO special, we have seen radio stations are quietly pulling Michael Jackson songs off of their playlists. We had that Michael Jackson musical that was supposed to debut in Chicago that's now been put off for at least a season or perhaps forever. But the other project that might be caught in the mix here is, is Bubbles. Right. Yeah, Bubbles, which is Taika Waititi, who directed Thor Ragnarok, and who I saw driving the other day in my neighborhood. Oh! Yeah. (laughs) Said hello. Mm -hmm. He has this great stop-motion project Mm -hmm. that is in the works, um, and that had been a script that was always on the blacklist, and then finally Netflix picked it up. But we haven't heard what the fate of it is Mm -hmm. in relation to Finding Neverland. So I would be very curious if that ever sees the light of day. Have you heard anything about this? Sometimes a project can get past issue with its creator. I mean, I think about, for example, the situation with Clarence. Bubbles telling the story from Michael Jackson's chimp's point of view. Mark Avenir talks about it. At one point, he was supposedly recruited to work on an animated series for Saturday morning that was actually going to be built around Bubbles. And what was the snake's name? Muscle? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the the Diana Ross song is named after his snake. You know that Diana Ross song, Muscle? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, (laughs) this was an idea that's been floating. In fact, Michael himself tried to put this forward. And you, you have to assume that... Now, you know, could you, in fact, tell the story of Bubbles without getting into the the, the kind of darker aspect of the story? I don't know. Yeah, it would be very hard to do. Okay. Yeah. Well, I still would love to see it, or at the very least, supposed to be an amazing screenplay that, that, as you said, had been on, you know, the blacklist for a couple of years now. I mean, everyone enjoyed reading it, but nobody dared make it. So, yeah. We'll see. Okay, so moving on here, the other thing that's that's dropped since we we last talked, of course, is the first full trailer for Aladdin, which I think assuaged a lot of people, mm-hmm. or at least me personally, when we all saw the teaser, and 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 I still I cannot wrap my head around the choices for the shots of the the CG genie. Right, those just weren't finished. Those weren't final. They couldn't have been on model and then to see how the the genie is presented in this first full trailer it's like okay now i see it now i see will smith's take on this character i don't know if i'm quite ready for iago to be the big bad in in the end of the movie but it's like all right okay (laughs) well did you see who they cast uh to voice iago this week oh no no who did they well, it is uh, Walt Disney Animation's lucky charm himself, Alan Tudyk, is going to be the voice of Iago. Really? Yes. Okay. Are we back in Moana country where basically, you know, remember the stories about him working on Moana where he just clucked to finish footage, right? I mean, it was right. so after the fact. <laughs> so 
what is this? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because I've, I've heard that ILM is uh, working very hard to get this finished. We actually have somebody from ILM coming in to, on to light the fuse to talk about the work on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and the first Mission Impossible, and they're like sweating trying to finish this movie. So if they're adding more to their plate, I'm sure that's not great. Mm. But who knows? You could have been cast months ago, and it just finally, the story finally broke. So Okay. And as long as we're talking about live-action remakes of, of Disney films, we can't actually share this material till it gets closer to Dumbo being released. But but you've seen the film at this point. I did. I saw Dumbo this past weekend, uh, went to the lot mm-hmm. and saw it, which is always a fun mm-hmm. night. And I really loved it. I thought it was really, really great. Mm-hmm. I think people are going to be really happy with it. It's moving. It's beautiful. The performances are really great and weird, mm. and uh, I think it's one of the strongest uh, live action to you know adaptations they've done yet. So I will be very curious to, as to what you think, mm-hmm. Mr. Hill. When are you seeing it? We're going to be seeing it on the twenty sixth. So maybe we should record on the twenty seventh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Without giving too much away here, the film that everybody knows is literally the first third, right? Oh, it's, yeah, it's it's maybe 20 minutes of the movie. I mean, the movie, you know, people forget that the original is so short mm-hmm. and that he doesn't fly until the very end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of, of things to, to pick out for eagle-eyed Disney fans. Mm-hmm. They do a version of the Pink Elephants on Parade sequence. Mm-hmm. There's a version of Baby Be Mine. They're are references to other Tim Burton Disney productions that I don't want to spoil, but uh, keep an eye out for a little nod to Nightmare. Okay. And we'll get into this later, but, you know, Tim Burton and Rick Heinrichs both were at Disney Animation when a lot of the animators who worked on Dumbo were still at Disney. Oh, God, that's right. Um, That's right. Yes. So it's kind of this amazing kind of, like, full circle moment Mm -hmm. for Burton and Rick Heinrichs. So, yeah, it's it's very cool. I think you're going to like it a lot. Okay. And we've seen from the first teaser trailer that there's not necessarily a Timothy Mouse character, but there are mice, right? There is a Timothy Mouse character, but he doesn't speak. Ah, okay. And what was interesting was during the press conference at the Junket, one of the producers, and I think the writer, said, you know, we we thought about our movie sort of running concurrently with the original. Mm -hmm. So the conversations that Dumbo and Timothy Mouse are are having are still happening. They're just off screen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Which I thought was really cool, you know. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So that that's kind of neat. Dumbo is cute as hell, and uh, yeah, I think you're gonna really, really dig it. All right. Well, well, can't wait. All right. Speaking of cartoon mice, though, that last week or thereabouts, the Tom and Jerry film that Tim Story is directing finally got a release date. Yeah, I think it's coming out in 2021. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, okay. I remember the last Tom and Jerry movie mm-hmm. from, the, from the 90s, which was absolutely terrible. Well, look, you know, anything, anything that has Richard Kind in it makes me happy. <laughs> I always enjoy Richard. On the other hand... They have done a ridiculous number of these home premiere films where it's, you know, yeah. you know Tom and Jerry and the Wizard of Oz, Tom and Jerry meet Sherlock Holmes. I want to say there's been 22 of them so far. So, um, but again, this is different. This is a live action hybrid. Yes, that's what I've heard. Okay. Yeah, they, they dated that for April 16th, 2021. Mm-hmm. And also the Sesame Street musical on January 15th, 2021, which is 
really fascinating. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll have to dig into it, but obviously you and, I, you and I both know that, that Henson's relationship with Sesame Street and the relationship between Disney and Sesame Street when they were acquiring Henson mm-hmm. is a major source of drama and, and intrigue. Oh, no. No, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, Joan Clooney, the woman who is in charge of... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. she wrote this amazing book that really... Not Michael Eisner's best hour in the period they were attempting to acquire the Muppets. And he had really set his sights on the Sesame Street Muppets. In fact, later this month, we're going to see the Sesame Street land open in SeaWorld, Orlando. Literally, it's called Sesame Street and, you know, five, you know, kid-friendly attractions and all that. But that's the thing, people, when they look at Streets of America, they don't understand exactly what they're looking at. There was going to be Muppet Studios, but literally around the corner was going to be Sesame Street. You would have had between Muppet Studios and a couple of, uh, you know, Sesame Street-based attractions, you would have had this amazing Henson operation right there in the park. And and Joan really put her foot down, you know, especially after Jim passed. And Eisner was really, 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 really pressing on the Henson family in regard to Jim's not here to create new characters, so we need all of his old characters, which means we need the children's television workshop. You need to, to give them, make them give us the rights to the, the Muppets, the Sesame Street Muppets. So, But getting back to, to Tom and Jerry, though, that this is supposed to be a hybrid feature, right? So Cat and, and Mouse done as animated characters and live action people as actual people and Given the history of Tom and Jerry, do you know about Mammy Two Shoes? No, I have no idea what that is. Okay, well, who that is? Okay, <laughs> we'll when we get back from a quick commercial break here, we'll we'll get into how in a weird sort of way the folks at MGM and Warner's could teach Disney a lesson. We were talking about Mammy Two-Shoes. And the Mammy Two-Shoes character appears in the very first Tom and Jerry short. It was released in theaters February of 1940. The film was called Give Puss the Boot. This is so early in the history of, of Tom and Jerry. They're not even called Tom and Jerry at this point. The cat is called Jasper and the mouse is called Jinx. If you've seen a, any Tom and Jerry cartoon, you, you know the story. The cat and the mouse are battling, but but there's a maid in the house. But the gimmick is that the maid, because the story is being told from the cat and the mouse's point of view, you never see the maid from the knees up. So you only see her feet and a little bit of her house dress. And so this is where the name Mammy Two-Shoes came from. You got to understand, so this is February of 1940, so if you've got a maid in a movie that's made in Hollywood during this period, it's kind of a pretty stereotypical take on African-American maid dialogue. And in fact, the, the woman who voiced Mammy Two-Shoes, she was Lillian Randolph. I'm sure you folks know her if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life. She's in that final scene of the movie where the town of Bedford Falls is showing up at the Baileys and there's a woman who comes up to the table at one point and basically upends her purse and says I've been saving this money for a divorce if I ever get a husband and that's Lillian Randolph. <laughs> the last of these cartoons with Mamie Two Shoes is, is produced in, in 52. It's Push Button Cat I think is the name of the short. So now we jump ahead to 1965 and 
MGM decides, okay, we're going to repurpose our cartoon library. We're going to make it available to television. They sell it to CBS, and CBS starts running it on Saturday morning. And they slap up the cartoons as is, and almost immediately they start getting phone calls and letters about what's the deal with this Mammy Two-Shoes character, this stereotypical African-American maid, and it's really kind of offensive. And CBS immediately turns to MGM and is like, well, what are you going to do about this? And at that time, Chuck Jones, who had been fired by Warner Brothers, is now working for MGM, and he's actually working on a brand new set of Tom and Jerry cartoons for theatrical release. In fact, I, th I think, well, he was there. He made 34 of them. CBS says to MGM executives, you got to do something about this. MGM executives say to Chuck Jones, you're in charge of Tom and Jerry animation now. you got to fix this. And they actually go back into these shorts from the 40s and the 50s, and they take each of the scenes that Mamie Two-Shoes is in, and there are two ways they approach this. They either go in and retrace the animation and they just make they change her from a stereotypical african-american maid to a stereotypical irish maid they just they paint her now she's pink and and now she's got a thick irish brogue and or they bury the needle in an exact opposite direction and they kind of do a young teenage girl who's very reminiscent of you know the disney thing all the cats join in the teen Bobby Soxer girl you see in that. Yes. They do her. You know, they do a character like her. Whether it's the, the heavyset Irish maid or the young teenage girl, they're both voiced by June Foray, who at this point, I want to say, she must have been her late 50s, early 60s anyway. So that's the patch of the bad tire for a couple of years. Uh, we jump ahead to 89 now, and here's the Turner organization, which has bought... The Cartoon Library at MGM, the Cartoon Library at Warner's, and is launching the Cartoon Network. They've got a Tom and Jerry show, but a, supposedly the gimmick of Cartoon Network is if it's a theatrical cartoon, you're going to see it as it was in theaters originally, you know, beautifully restored and, and that sort of thing. So they divert back to the original shorts from the 40s and the 50s. And sure enough, they start getting calls, they start getting letters about Mammy Two-Shoes. But to give the folks at Turner credit, they came at this an entirely different way. They decided that, well, rather than replace the animation, that seems kind of wasteful, why don't we redub the scene? And they, they get African-American comedian Thea Vidal to come in. And what she does is she takes the offensive, stereotypical made dialogue from the 40s and redoes it in such a way that it, it, it plays, it's funnier, it works for an audience of the 80s and the 90s. You would think, given the problems with these character, or this character, you'd never do her again. You'd never bring her back again. But, but here, now, 2006, they launched the Tom and Jerry Tales show in 2006, and, and Mammy Two-Shoes is back. Now, now, mind you, she's now Mrs. Two-Shoes, of unknown ethnic heritage. Uh, she's she's <laughs> voiced by Nicole Oliver, who probably best known to animation fans today for voicing Princess Celestia and Cherry Lee on My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. And what I like about the way Warner Brothers has handled all of this is that if you go and buy, for example, the Tom and Jerry Spotlight DVD collection, where they bring in Whoopi Goldberg. She actually stands in front of the camera as the introductory material and says, 
The cartoons you're about to see are products of their time. They may depict some ethnic and racial prejudice that were commonplace in U.S. society back then. These depictions were wrong then, and they are wrong today. While the following does not represent Warner Brothers' views of today's society, these cartoons are being presented as they were originally created because to do otherwise would be claiming that these prejudices never existed. And I, I don't know about you, Drew, but I, I love that attitude. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. I bring up this story not just because of the live action, um, you know, Tom and Jerry, we were just talking about with Tom's story coming out in 2021, but on our last show... Drew and I were talking about Disney Plus and what was going to come out through Disney Plus. And the question, obviously, for a lot of animation fans and, and Disney fans is, well, does this mean that Song of the South is finally going to come out? And just I wanted to share a story about how Disney tried to get Song of the South out earlier. This kind of dates back to the mid-90s. Disney knew they had issues with Song of the South. In fact, it's this kind of a famous story about how when Michael Eisner had become CEO of the Walt Disney Company in September of uh, 1984, and, and the very weekend that he he was hired, he ended up on a Saturday morning with his son Breck over at Imagineering, and they were sort of walking him through the model shop, and his son Breck sort of slipped away from the formal presentation because they had buried the model for Splash Mountain way to the back of the room. And Breck was like, Dad, come take a look at this. And it's like, wow, what's that? And it's, well, it's a flume ride. And Tony Baxter designed this. And blah, 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 blah. it's like, ooh, we should build this. But again, it's like, well, you don't understand, sir. That's based on Song of the South. And we don't release that movie anymore. And, and Eisner, you know, was like, well, okay, then... Let's release it and find out whether or not people will complain. So November of 1986, for like this limited short run around Thanksgiving of that year, they put Song of the South back into theaters, and it made a pile of money, and they didn't get any letters of complaint. So Eisner said, okay, go, build the ride. But even then, it was a question of, well, you can't put the Uncle Remus character in the ride. So they had to create a whole new narrator. We, we got Br'er Frog. The company still was obviously squeamish about this whole thing because July of 1989, Splash Mountain opens at Disneyland Park and you, you get the a, a figure of Br'er Frog in that attraction, whereas you jump ahead three years to October of 92 and the Walt Disney World version opens. And on that version of the attraction, no Br'er Frog animatronic, but you get a shadow just sort of like right. we don't want any representation of uncle remus but disney they're constantly especially from people who are getting off of splash mountain they go into the gift shop and oh i you know i would so love to own the vhs of the blu-ray or the dvd of song of the south and why don't you make it available and, and disney couldn't figure out what to do and they eventually came up with this intriguing sort of plan where it's like, well, what if we made another film that we put alongside of it? Okay. You know, something that showed how far we've come as a company, that, you know, we have a, a heroic person from American folklore, you know, and what they ended up settling on was, okay, we'll do John Henry, the story of John Henry, the seal driving man. This plan was put forward in 1996. And the idea is they make the short, 
they put it out on the festival circuit for a while, you know, hopefully wins a couple of awards. And then what they do going forward is that they pair it with Song of the South, but in much the same way as Whoopi Goldberg did that thing for the Warner Brothers thing, they wanted to get a prominent African-American author or celebrity to sort of appear in an interstitial moment, you know, to the effect of explaining, okay, so you just watched John Henry, we're now going to watch Song of the South, and you got to remember that, you know, this was a different time, and so this is a plan now. Walt Disney Animation Studios, Florida, starts to work on John Henry, but they then begin to cast around for, well, all right, who's going to, who's going to narrate this thing? And the first three choices were James Earl Jones, which again, makes sense. He'd just done Mufasa for uh, The Lion King. Then there was Morgan Freeman, which is kind of a gimme. A weirder third choice was Garrison Keillor of Prairie Home Companion fame, who given what happened there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe a, a better choice to pass on. But the other one was Maya Angelou. Oh. Yeah, it makes sense if we're talking about here is, you know, one of America's most, you know, respected women of letters, the Uncle Remus stories, the Chandler books are going to beloved things of American folklore. So it was like, all right, this makes sense. Let, let's run this by her. And the mistake, initially, she's completely on board with the idea. And then someone makes the mistake of, of explaining, and then we're going to use this to bring Song of the South out on VHS and this is going to be the bridge thing and you're going to speak and Maya shuts this guy down in a heartbeat and it's like no I will not only not take part in this but if you people ever bring out Song of the South on VHS or or Blu-ray I will personally lead the protest. Wow. Yeah it kind of speaks volumes about how Disney felt about this that you know when it came time to update Hall of Presidents when George W. Bush came in her narration was removed from the entire show, and they then bring in J.D. Hall to record this thing. So, jumping ahead, Disney still does John Henry, even though now it's like, well, there's no way we can bring Song of the South out on VHS. You know, Maya Angelou is going to lead the charge. It's, you know, it's a PR disaster. But oddly enough, John Henry turns out to be a bit of a PR disaster itself from... 2019, you can sort of look at this and go, oh, you you got a whole bunch of white guys to do a film about this great African-American folk, you know, hero from folklore. Yeah, led by the ultimate white guy, Mark Henn. We love Mark. We love, we Mark. love Mark. We love Mark. And yeah. he actually, you know, I thought he did an okay job with this thing. You're a little less fond of this film? I just think it's it, there's not a lot of uh, pep to it let us say that it, it feels more like education than uh entertainment let's just say that yeah i guess so and because this wasn't a priority anymore it ended up that rather than a james Earl jones or a morgan freeman or even a garrison keeler we got alfredo woodard which don't get me wrong i i love me some alfredo woodard as well you know that does great great work but uh, that sort of showed you where this project was in the disney food chain and the fact that it got, I don't even think a token release. I don't even recall, I, I remember hearing that it was shown at a couple of film festivals and then that was it. It's like, look, okay, we we made our token effort and back into the vault it went. And Well, it did come out on the, on the Walt Disney Animation Studios short films collection a few years ago. This is true. This is true. And I want to say that 
at one point they put together an, an American Heroes thing where it was that Paul Bunyan short, Johnny Appleseed, and and I think it got lumped in there. I mean, there there have been people within the company who've championed it and tried to to get it out there. But, you know, the hard reality is that this was created for one specific reason that didn't go forward, and that was trying to get Song of the South out there. And it's not like Disney hasn't done bumped up against folks who they tried to recruit for projects and wound up being offended. At some point, you know, you and I are going to have to talk about the whole... You know, what went on with Tarzan and when Disney approached Chris Rock about voicing Turk, the, the role that Rosie O'Donnell played. And never seen a person angrier in his entire life because of, you know, you're asking me to voice a gorilla. I'm a black man and you're asking me to voice a gorilla. And it's like, no, 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 I'm asking you to voice a character in an animated film. Right. That was a whole project that went sideways on them. I mean, if they had handled the whole Indiana Jones adventure situation better... Harrison Ford was supposed to have voiced Kershek, the silverback. Oh, yeah. And now he's finally going to voice an animated character in That's it, uh, exactly. Secret Life of Pets 2. Yeah, and I, I want to say Duke. Yeah, I think so. It's a wonderful piece of animation, but Tarzan was originally supposed to come out, in, or, or it did come out in 1999, and here we are 20 years later, you know, and Harrison Ford's finally making his animated debut in Secret Life of Pets too. But and I finally went on the Tarzan Treehouse during the '90s night. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought of it. And it's it's okay. It's pretty good. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm gonna do a Stairmaster, you know, I want to be able to read a magazine. <laughs> yeah, it's very aerobic. There, th- uh, there you go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And you know, and you can't even do. In fact, well, that's. The story Bruce Gordon used to tell that when he was a kid and he'd go to Disneyland, how he'd deliberately climb the Swiss Family Treehouse so he could peer down into the pit where Pirates of the Caribbean was being built. And, you know, it said, spent 18 months looking at rusting steel girders. It was like, you know, when they <laughs> shut that down, it didn't go forward. But well, anyway, we're going forward, folks. And in fact, again, if you come back, we'll have all of that killer Dumbo material that you just collected at the junket. But if Drew, if, if they can't wait till then to hear again your, your golden tones, where else can they find you? Well, uh, you can listen to me on uh, the Light the Fuse podcast, the Mission Impossible podcast. We just got our approval from Brad Bird. It had a lot of emojis. It's going up on Friday, the first part of the the interview. So by the next by next week, I'll be looking at the second part on Friday. So I hope everybody likes that. I hope you like it, Jim. Oh, okay. I hope you listen to it. I want to be sure not to get between the computer and Nancy when she finds out that Brad Bird is talking. Because seriously, this I, I think I've told you about this. I could be hit by a car and Nancy would step over my steaming entrails if Brad Bird were on the other side of the street. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't blame her. I, I, I can sort of blame her, you know, <laughs> but I you know, But but no, very, very much looking forward to that interview. Now, meanwhile, on, on my side of the fence, well, we got the Disney dish with, with Len Testo. We got looking at Lucasfilm with the amazing Dan Z. We got Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams. And the brand new I Want That with, with Shaoli Bayadolid. And we're going to be talking about the whole Disney wisdom thing. What is Disney wisdom? I, have you, you? Oh, oh, those Mushu things? Yes, yes. You know, it's Okay. Like, you know what's very interesting about this is that. <laughs> We've got a flag on the play, on the offense, delivering information before an embargo. Penalty, an awkward edit, and fourth down. 
Restart the clock. Just broke some news as we're headed out the door here, Drew. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. We, we can cut that out. Whatever. Okay. All right. So, on behalf of myself and Mr. Taylor, if you could do us a favor, folks, and head over to iTunes and rate our shows and, and recommend them to friends, you know, that would be very helpful. Likewise, if you like what we're doing here, if you want to get a subscription to Bandcamp, you get exclusive shows. And in fact, we're, we're looking at bringing back Y4 as a, a show to do over there. So I guess that's it for now, but come back because again, we, we're yeah, going to we'll be back soon. We'll be back soon yeah. and we'll be talking Dumbo. And so until then, keep the ears tucked in close to your body because you don't want to leave the ground. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.